0: Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six. So we look at a message entitled, Revering God, the power and purpose of hallowing his name. Revering God, the power and purpose of hallowing his name. As we continue on this journey through the Sermon on the Mount, some of the richest and and most well-known chapters in all of Scripture, many of you have large portions. It's not all of this memorized, in fact. You've heard so many sermons, studied it so many times. As as we continue this journey, my goal, as always, is that our understanding of these Scriptures would deepen and as well our desire to obey God and what He teaches us in these Scriptures would intensify. And I, I hope and pray that has been and will continue to be the case. I've shared with you before, I often turn to various authors and theologians and pastors for insight and for confirmation and some of these men. And there's been so many people write so deeply and and movingly and informatively on prayer that you'd run out of people to to research when you're researching a sermon on prayer. But particularly, I want to pay note to uh, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Dr. John Piper, all of them have made notable contributions contributions and understanding this text and helping us to apply it to our lives. So in honor of the reading of God's word, would you please stand as you read our text? Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You could read with me if you want to. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. And again, we tread familiar waters, Lord, and pray for fresh inspiration, which can only come by your Holy Spirit. Speak through me, I pray. Open up the ears of all those who are here to listen, those who are online, Father, that we may glean from this Father which you'd have us glean and apply it to our lives to glorify you in Jesus name we pray Amen please be seated so let me ask you a rhetorical question here beloved what is the most urgent need in the church today and you're thinking about answers already and the answers vary we might say more passion more faithfulness better leaders. All those are good, and there are more. But I would suggest to you that the one thing we most urgently need in the American church and in our church today is a deeper knowledge of God. We simply need to know God better. As we deepen our understanding, our knowledge of God and His character, His attributes, His Word, we put ourselves in a position to experience growth in areas that are important to us, like our, our personal holiness, our character, our compassion, our, our compassion for the lost, our zeal for the lost, our thirst for the Word, our passion for worship, and more. But, but I hope you can see, beloved, how, how pursuing growth in those areas without a genuine, passionate desire to know God more intimately could lead us to a, a very self-centered approach to our walk and to our relationship with God. One where it's all about what God can do for us. One that's focused primarily on what He can do for us. Beloved, if we're not willing to do the hard work of growing in the knowledge of God, growing in the, the fear and admonition of the Lord, part of what it means, by the way, to work out your own salvation, to, to strain and press forward toward the goal of Christ's likeness as Paul admonishes us to do in Philippians 2 and 3, empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit always. If we're not willing to do those things, I fear we will inevitably remain in the shallow waters. We won't be able to enjoy the, the, the spiritual depths that God desires that we explore in this journey toward Christ-likeness that we are on. So in, in merely instead of merely chasing after God's blessings, church family, we ought to first and foremost be about cultivating a genuine and fiery passion for knowing Him. And one of the fundamental steps to knowing God, one of the basic evidences that we do know God, is prayer. I'm talking about spiritual, persistent, biblically informed prayer. Writing a century and a half ago, Robert Murray McShane declared, what a man is alone on his knees before God... That he is and no more. He's right. What a man, what a woman is on her knees before God. That she is and no more. And it bears repeating because because we've largely ignored this. And we've learned how to organize and administer. All kinds of programs and, and ministries. We, we built nice facilities. We develop evangelistic strategies. We, we implement and administer discipleship programs. But we have, I fear, largely forgotten the importance of prayer. Now, for many Americans, every day is a day of prayer. There's some good numbers here. In fact, 55% of Americans say they pray every day. 21% say they pray weekly or monthly. Only 23% of people that were surveyed here by the Pew Research Center said that they seldom or never pray. And even among those who are religiously unaffiliated, that's the group called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not affiliated to anything, 20% of those say they pray daily. Women, I don't know if you knew this or not, women, 64% are more likely than men, 46% to pray every day. And of Americans aged 40, excuse me, 65 or older, they are far more likely to pray, 65% to 41% than those under 30. A majority of Christians, 55%, say they rely significantly on prayer and personal religious reflection when they make major life decisions. The same survey found that 63% of Christians in the United States say praying regularly is an essential part of their Christian identity. And those numbers don't sound too bad, right? Right? But I suggest we need to go a little bit deeper than the numbers. Where is our delight? Where is our passion for prayer? What, what is our sense that we have the distinct privilege of coming before the living God? Right? That we're in fact doing business with the creator of the universe. When was the last time we came away from our prayer time feeling like Jacob or or, or Moses, like we had prevailed with God? How much of our prayer is mostly mechanical, spiced with cliches, empty words? And if we stop and think about it, remind us of the hypocrites that Jesus had just denounced. Listen, I'm I'm not saying these things to beat you up or to guilt you or to try to curse you and to... Ramp up, ramping up your prayer life, but, but what are we going to do, church? What are we going to do? Has not each of us been discouraged about our prayer life at, at some time or another? I mean, how many of us have a longing to improve our praying? Now, I know some of you are amazing prayer warriors, and I'm so thankful for your faithfulness. And some of the rest of us, we know some faithful prayer warriors Amazing people, but is it not generally true that we're better at talking about prayer and making excuses for our lack of prayer than we are at being passionate and persistent in our prayers? Is it not true that most of us are better and more comfortable working with our hands in ministry, which is important ministry, than we are at interceding? Better at fellowship than fasting. Better at doctrinal discussions than spiritual worship. Better, God help me, better at preaching than praying. What's wrong, beloved? I suggest to you this goes back to the idea that our, God, our knowledge of God is not what it ought to be. J.I. Packer gets it right when he says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a person spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Church, how can we hope to address and conquer the the myriad of cultural challenges that we are now facing that are only going to get worse? How can we hope to to step up to the opportunities we have before us to to do kingdom work in the tri-cities and beyond if prayer, both corporate and personal, continues to be as ignored as it has been. In our text, we find ourselves face-to-face with this most important subject about which Dr. Martin Lord Jones write, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face-to-face with God. And if we agree... Well, doctor Lord Lloyd-Jones, if we say prayer is the highest activity of the human soul, then does it not follow that at the same time, listen now, at the same time it is the ultimate test of our spiritual condition? There's nothing, I suggest to you, that tells the truth about us as Christians or as the people of God as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. You think about it. It's not so difficult to give to the needy. You've probably had a co-worker or have one now who checks a box and has something come out of his or her check every week going to United Way for some charitable cause, some worthy cause. Benevolence and charity are not exclusive to believers. Unbelievers practice benevolence. We can say the same thing about church, excuse me, about self-discipline and about service, whether it's abstaining for certain things or taking care of our family or serving in the community. Lost people do those kinds of things as well. And it's true when it comes to performing certain tasks within the church. I confess to you that it is so much easier for me to preach 30 or 40 minutes than it is for me to pray 30 or 40 minutes. Prayer is undoubtedly the ultimate test because we can, we, we, can, we can talk to others just about anybody easier than we can talk to God the, the truth is we can easily and accurately discover where we are spiritually when we are, examine ourselves in secret when we're alone with God after we've left this place this morning the time of corporate worship and fellowship is behind us and we're back in our home, we're in a room, we're by ourselves, it's just us and God. Is there that we really know where we stand spiritually. God knows and we know. So prayer is not only the highest activity in which we take part, it is the ultimate test of where we stand with God. J.I. Packer is surely right when he says that prayer is the measure of a person like nothing else is. We can say it like this. You always find that the The outstanding characteristic of all the saintliest people the world has ever known has been that they have spent great amounts of time in fervent prayer. But that they have also taken great joy in their prayer time. Piper reminds us that we can't read about the great giants of our faith without realizing that that is, is true of them. The saintlier a person is, the more that time that person has spent in prayer. There's no more important matter for you and I to consider, beloved. And surely that means that there's a greater need for teaching and emphasis and, and guidance when it comes to the matter of prayer, perhaps more than any other. And that's, that's been the case in the lives of God's people down through the centuries. We can go back to the Gospels. John the Baptist had been preaching and teaching to his disciples about about prayer, and they must have felt like they needed instruction. They had asked him for guidance, and so John taught them how to pray. And now Christ's disciples felt exactly that same need. And so they come to Jesus, and they say, Well, you know, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. And no doubt that desire to know more about prayer Was rooted in their awareness of how difficult a task it can be. Something we're painfully aware of as well, right? But it must have been because, it must have been too, because they had seen Jesus. They had taken notice of his prayer life. They had seen him get up in the middle of the night and go up on a mountainside and stay there all night praying to his Father. I can imagine them saying to themselves and to one another when Jesus was out of earshot, How does he do that? What does he talk to God about for that length of time? They may have thought, you know, I run out of words after only a few minutes. How can Jesus pray for that long? It's so easy for him, it seems. How do we do that? How do I do that? They wanted to be able to pray like their master prayed. We wish we knew the Father like you did do, Jesus. Teach us how to pray. Beloved, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been... Discouraged, maybe even disgusted with your prayer life? And long, perhaps desperately longed to know more and more of what it is to really pray? And maybe you're there right now. If you are, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're ready then for the Lord to help us become the kind of prayer warriors we've longed to become in my own life I know full well the more quality time quality time I spend with the Lord in prayer the more effective I am in his kingdom work the more joyful I am in my personal walk the more loving I am the kinder I am the more patient I am the more you name it so I have to ask myself all the time so where is my prayer life not where it ought to be Jesus wanted His disciples and 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 us to be more effective in prayer, and so He offers some instruction here in our text, and He does it through what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Now, you've no doubt heard this before. It's also called the Model Prayer and the Pattern Prayer and the Disciples Prayer. We read it earlier. I I like referring to, to this prayer as the Model Prayer because... It was never intended to be merely a prayer that we just repeated by rote over and over again. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that, with praying this prayer back to God, meditating on it. But, but, but personally, I'm, in fact, I'm in a season where I use the model prayer as, as an overall guide, as a, as a schematic, so to speak, a framework for my prayer time every single day. But Jesus never intended for it to become what He had just warned us against, which is meaningless Repetition. His desire was that it would become a model for prayer, and that's what it is. And so as we examine this prayer in detail in the remainder of our time, we're going to find a pattern for prayer that can, and if you follow it, will revolutionize your prayer life. The first thing we see is the structure of the model prayer. As as we look closely at this prayer, you're going to see several different categories of prayer. The first three, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. What do you notice? They all deal with God, right? They all deal with God's glory. The other three deal with petitions that we might want to lay before God's throne. Notice the first three petitions contain the word your, right? They all have reference to God. And then we see, only then did we see the word us come into play. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. And that order of petitions is something, beloved, that we ought to take note of. The first three, again, are concerned only with God, look only to God and His glory. And they show us, what they show us is before we begin to think about ourselves and our needs, our situation, our circumstances, even before we intercede for those that we love who have great needs, we must begin with praise and tribute to God our Father and His glory. Jesus begins this model prayer where we need to begin our prayer. He begins with praise. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But when we come to God, we come in worship, right? The psalmist says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. There's a way to approach God, and that way begins in praise. Our times of of devotional praying ought to begin by expressing our desire that His name be honored, that His name be hallowed. More on that in just a moment. First, we see that He is our Father, our Father in heaven. Cyprian, the great bishop of Carthage in the middle of the 3rd century A.D., expressed the privilege we have when he wrote this about the Lord's Prayer. He wrote, How great is the Lord's indulgence! How great are His condescension and plenteousness of goodness toward us, seeing that He has wished us to pray in the sight of God in such a way as to call God Father and to call ourselves sons and daughters of God, even as Christ is the Son of God, A name which none of us would dare to venture in prayer unless He Himself had allowed us thus to pray. So Jesus tells us here to join with Him in calling God Father. And what this means fundamentally is that God is not some distant being, some mystical other out there somewhere in the heavens. He's our Heavenly Father. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, literally, Daddy, Father. Now, what might this look like? practically speaking if we're going to use this as a template as a model as a framework as as we pray our father we might ask him to implant in our hearts a comforting trust of his fatherly love We, we might reflect upon the sweetness of that sound to call him father referring to god as my father our father there's such richness is there not to us calling god our father For one thing, it means that we acknowledge Him as our Redeemer. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. He's welcomed us as part of His family. We're the prodigal child, beloved, returned home to our Father. It also means that we acknowledge our unique relationship to Him. And that means that we recognize our responsibility to Him. And we acknowledge that we're to obey Him because obedience is due, our Heavenly Father. That's all true. But the sweetest good news is that it also means we can come before the eternal King of the universe, the God over all the kingdoms on earth, the King of glory, the King of heaven, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Most High, the One to be feared, the Consuming Fire, the Exalted One, the Everlasting God, the Great King above all kings, as a little child, approaches his earthly father crying out, Daddy! Daddy! We we praise him for all that his being our father means for us. He is our defender, our protector, our strength, our comforter, our shelter, our fortress, our spring of living water, the strength of our heart, our wisdom, and our strong deliverer who will reach down Beloved, and pick us up when we fall and he will gather us in his loving arms even and especially in those moments when we are quite unlovable and sure that no one could possibly love us and it's made even sweeter when we stop and realize that he's not just your father or my father but He is our Father. Beloved, that makes us family. Say that makes us family. family. We're all part of a greater family, brothers and sisters. So when we enter the presence of our Father, we come acknowledging Him as such by praising Him for being our Father and by thanking Him for His redeeming love that makes us a part of His family. We never need Phil alone as His children. We can praise God for the great body of believers to which we belong, greater than this room, going back for eons. We can praise Him that we have brothers and sisters in Christ right here in this room, though, who are there for us in times of need to help us, to love us, to walk alongside us, maybe even to carry us in our darkest hours. And, of course, rejoice with us when the times are good. Having God as our Father gives us a never-ending list of reasons To praise him. So having understood to whom we're speaking, that we're in fact in the presence of God, Almighty God, and that He's our Father, Jesus teaches His disciples and us that our first desire, our first petition should be hallowed be your name. Now you probably already know the the word hallowed means sanctified. Jesus is telling us to pray, let your name be sanctified. Sanctify means to make holy or to set apart or to to treat as holy. Now, when God sanctifies us, that means that He makes us holy. But when we hallow, when we sanctify God, it means that we treat God as holy. So Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would cause His name to be treated as holy in our own lives, in our biological family, in our church family, across our community, our state, our nation, to the ends of the earth. And then our question becomes, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to treat God as holy? What are we asking God to do when we pray that He causes us to treat His name as holy? There are four scriptures that I want to take us to in the Old Testament that use this word hallow or sanctify or treat as holy in relation to God every every one of them gives us an idea of what it means to hallow our Father the verse is uh, Numbers 20 verse 12 you recall that in the the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness in the desert and they, they began to run out of water they complained to Moses and God instructed Moses to speak to the rock right and that water would flow forth and Moses impatient impulsive whatever struck the rock twice With his rod and water did flow from the rock, but God rebuked Moses and he said, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These words, you did not believe in me to sanctify me, to hallow me, provide us with the initial understanding of what it means to sanctify or hallow the name of God. It means to have faith in him, to trust what he says. When we when you and I pray for God's name to be hallowed, we're essentially asking him to, to inspire in us belief. To cause us to, to believe in his word, to trust in, in his word. Another passage that sheds light on hallowing God's name is Isaiah 8, 12 through 13. We read these words, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So in this text, God advises Isaiah not to be like the people of Israel and to fear that which they fear. Instead, Isaiah is to regard the Lord of hosts as holy and to fear, as in revering Him above all others and above all other things, and to dread Him, as in to treat Him with awe. And that means that hallowing God involves not fearing what others fear, but fearing God Himself. It means prioritizing obedience to God over the cares and concerns of this world, whatever it may cost us. After all, Jesus does promise to compensate us all for our worldly Losses when we obey Him. What does He say? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But, beloved, if we stand In opposition to his will, there can be no thought of recompense in light of the consequences, the eternal consequences of that disobedience. Beloved, there is no greater loss we can incur than his disapproval. The world cannot offer an in-kind substitute. And then look at Leviticus 22, 31-32. So shall you keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified, that is, hallowed among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So God instructs His people to keep the commandments and not profane His holy name. So, so we see that another aspect of hallowing God's name is tied to obeying His commandments. When we pray, when you and I pray for God's name to be hallowed, we are essentially asking Him to give us the faith to obey His commandments. We're in essence praying, Father, cause me to obey your commandments. Piper writes, God wants us to walk in obedience, joy, and fulfillment and peace, and everything else that has to do with life, with the life and conduct of a believer are bound up in obedience to God and His Holy Word. Beloved, we dare not place our hope in any heavenly reward unless and until we have humbly committed ourselves to obey His Word. And, then, and the last of these examples comes from coming from Scripture is Leviticus 10.3 Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will show myself holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So, this, this verse here reveals a connection then between God's holiness and God's glorification. So, when you and I pray, Hallowed be your name, we're praying for his name to be glorified because he is holy. 17th century Puritan preacher Stephen Charnock writes, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, though it is not a distracted or terrified fear, but a reverential fear of Him because of His holiness, a worship of Him, a submission to Him, and a sincere seeking of Him. Beloved, recognizing and acknowledging the holiness of God is one of the ways that we hallow His name. So again, practically speaking, as we pray, hallowed be your name. How how might we use that as a framework? We we might ask God to keep us from dishonoring his name as we pray that phrase. We we might ask him to empower us and our family members and our church members, fellow church members, to be good and holy. We we might pray that his name would be honored around the world as it one day will be for sure, right? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We we might pray that we ourselves, our brothers and sisters, might honor God with the Christ-likeness of our lives as we pray, hallowed be Your name. We might pray that we would have a, a heart of grateful joy toward Him, rooted in our reverence for Him. We might pray that our heart would be captivated by wonder for Him. So let's sum up what we've seen so far. Hallowed be Your name. Is a request here, not a declaration. We're saying, Lord, cause your name to be hallowed. As we look at those verses in the Old Testament, that is, cause your name to be believed, cause your displeasure to be feared, cause your commandments to be obeyed, and cause yourself to be glorified. Beloved, we hallow the name of God when we trust, revere, obey, And glorify him. But then why did Jesus say that we should pray, hallowed be your name? What does this term name stand for? Well, scholars remind us that this was the way in which the Jews at that time would commonly refer to God Himself. You may recall that they had this sense of reverence, right? Because of the and because of their customs, they would not use the word. Yahweh. They felt that that very name, the very letters were so sacred and they were so unworthy that they couldn't even utter them. They dare not even mention them. So we often referred to God as the name. In Hebrew, Hashem. They did that to avoid the actual term Yahweh. So here, the name rem- means God Himself and we see that the purpose of petition is to express this desire that God Himself may be revered. may may be howled in the very name of God, and all that it stands for may be honored among men, may be holy throughout the world. The name then means all that's true of God, all that's been revealed concerning God. It means God in all His attributes, God in all that He is in and of Himself, God in all that He has done and all that He's doing. God, you remember, revealed Himself to the children of Israel under various names. He used the term El or Elohim all the way back in Genesis one nine. And I wish we had time to go into the beauty of the symbolism of the letters of Elohim. Because it's wonderful. And one day we'll do that. But here it means strength and power. So when he used that particular name, he's giving the people of his sense of his power, his dominion, his might. And later he revealed himself as that great and wonderful name jehovah which means the self-existent one i am that i am eternally self-existent and there are other names that god used to describe himself and i'm going to share with you just eight of those names that god used to reveal something of his character and his care for us we have jehovah rohi means the lord is my shepherd like a shepherd the lord gently leads and cares for his people Sheep of His pasture. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. He's the standard under which we rally as the people of God. He, He is our rallying point. Jehovah Yerah means the Lord will provide. Just like He provided for Abraham at His point of need, so the Lord will provide for us at our point of need. Jehovah Rapha means the Lord heals. He heals in every way. Not just physically, but emotionally and Spiritually. Jehovah Shema means the Lord is there. God is there when you need Him. There's no place where He is not. Jehovah Shalom means the Lord is peace. Through Him we find true inner peace, which is there even in the midst of the storm. Jehovah Imkadesh means the Lord who sanctifies. He makes us holy because He sets us apart for Himself. And finally, Jehovah Sidkenu means the Lord, our righteousness. He is our righteousness, and through His Son, Jesus Christ, He imparts His righteousness to us. Now, now when God used these various names to refer to Himself, He's revealing something of His character, something of His being, something of His attributes to us. So when Jesus says, Hallowed be your name, in a sense, name stands for any of that or all of that. So we've seen that we can praise our Father for who He is. For all the promises that are, that, are that, that are ours through His name. We can bow before a God revealed to be all that we could ever hope for. All that we could ever need. All that we need is found in God. Say, all we need is found in God. Found in God. And of course, the fullness of Him is found in In Jesus, the fullness of all He is, everything regarding the nature and the character of the Father finds its fulfillment in the person and the work of God the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the meaning of this petition, beloved, is that it's a burning desire that the whole world may bow before God in adoration, in reverence, in praise, in worship, in honor, and in thanksgiving let me ask you in closing is that our supreme desire is that the one thing that's always uppermost in our minds when we go to God in prayer whatever our circumstances whatever our situation may be because if it's not can our praying be any better than that of the hypocrites and Gentiles that Jesus has just rebuked. When you and I come to God, Jesus says in essence here, even though we may be in desperate need, even though we may be in dire circumstances, even, even though we may be consumed by our need to the point that it is the only thing we can think about, the principle of Jesus' teaching here is that even in those moments, we stop We reflect and we realize that the greatest desire of all, even before those needs that are legitimate and desperate, should be that this wonderful God that we call Father, blessed to call Father, and so because Jesus, His Son, sacrificed His life on the cross, should be honored, should be worshipped, should be magnified, should be hallowed for all that He has done and promised to do. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Father, we are thankful for time spent together and Your Word as always. We confess that, Lord, uh, our prayer lives ebb and flow. We're thankful for those seasons where we experience closeness, intimacy to you with times of fervent prayer and we regret and are remorseful over those seasons when we are distant and we miss our time with you. Father, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit that convicts us and draws us back to you. And I pray today as we've looked at this these words talking about you as our Father, talking about hallowing your name, that you'd help us to understand that fully, to flesh that out, to remember that and reflect upon that as we come to you in prayer. Continue to teach us as we look through the remainder of this powerful message on prayer. I want to pray for those here this morning who are struggling with their prayer life. Father, they've not talked to you perhaps for a while, maybe only in times of extreme need urgency. I pray that they would recapture that passion that fervency they had for just moments spent in your loving embrace talking to you maybe just being quiet and listening allowing your word as they've learned it to teach them in those moments of prayer. I pray for all those who were in and out of seasons of prayer Father they're, they're, they do good sometimes and other times that they they fail. I pray, Lord, you'd just help us to be more consistent. And I'm thankful, Lord, for those who are indeed prayer warriors. They shoulder that burden and yet they see it not as a burden, but as a joy. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them. We're thankful for their time spent with you. We know that we are the benefactors of that. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be in this house today to praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.